Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Oh, good morning. My name is Johnny. I'm uh, one of the pastors of the church. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we might see, see who Jesus is, see what he has done. And so get up and follow him. Your glory. Amen. So um, imagine you go home today and uh, you're having a clear out at home and you stumble across somewhere in the bottom of a cupboard somewhere or something this Aladdin's lamp in the bottom of your wardrobe. And you kind of give it a polish and the genie pops out. And the genie says, I give you a wish, what do you wish? What do you ask for? Go on, give me some answers. What, what might you ask for? Yeah, oh yeah, that, 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 that was where I was coming. Infinite genies. Yeah, go on, Louise. Healthy and pain-free, absolutely. Oh, yeah, a ticket all England to win the year, absolutely. There's another one over here somewhere? Go on. 
life free from sin. Absolutely. We can think of so many different things, and it might be health or, or riches or, I mean, I, to honestly, I'd have asked, like, can I be really powerful and wealthy and, you know, and really successful in life? And who knows, maybe infinite genies, infinite wishes. It's, it's, it's a funny scenario, isn't it? Think about it this way, though. What if all of your prayers of this week were written down? And I was about to read them out to everybody. What, what would that show about your attitude to Jesus? What, when you come to Jesus, what you're looking for from him? In the quietness of your own heart, what are the things that you've been bringing before him? I wonder if sometimes we treat him a bit like a genie. You see, I, I don't even saw in this, it'd be really helpful if you keep, <clears throat> keep this open on page, <clears throat> sorry, page 1014, Mark 10. Twice in that reading that Eleanor gave us, Jesus asked exactly the same question to people. And he says to people, what do you want me to do for you? Twice he says, what do you want me to do for you? I wonder right now if Jesus could do anything for you. You ask it and he'll do it. What is it you would ask for? Probably for every one of us, it would be some change in our circumstances, whether it's health or getting to the game or whatever else it is. This is not necessarily wrong to see change in circumstances. But we need to be careful that we don't treat Jesus just like some genie. Give us our wishes. We need to humbly realize our needs before him, not only kind of our wants and our nice-to-haves. See, the first time he asked this question, uh, if you look down, it's in uh, verse 36. Uh, and he asked it to, to James and John. And these guys are uh, two of Jesus' disciples. And actual fact, they're kind of if you like, the, the closest disciples, they're part of his inner three, the ones he took up the mountain and he kind of showed his true glory to. And for James and John, they're kind of pinching themselves, I guess, as the story's unfolding. Because these guys were just like these common fishermen. Nobody really interested in them, just kind of going about life, just kind of ordinary guys. Suddenly they're now in this kind of, this gang with Jesus, this kind of new kingdom that Jesus is talking about. And they're thinking, you know what, we've got a shot at greatness here. We've got a chance to be something. And I guess they're thinking, oh, we don't want to let that go. So what could you do for us, Jesus? Well, listen, if, if we're your best mates, Jesus, then surely we're going to have the highest place of honor in glory with you. We are going to sit at your right and your left, aren't we? You see, these guys have been with Jesus almost three years at this point. Yet they're still totally self-interested. Here they come acting like children. Matthew has them sending their mum to do their bidding for them, just like little boys who can't even own up to themselves, trying to manipulate Jesus, trying to trap him into giving them what they want. A bit like he's a genie just giving out, you know, wishes. We see the rest of the disciples aren't much better. When they hear what's happened, they're really annoyed, they're indignant. And it's not they're annoyed because they're like, James and John, you've got the wrong, you've got the wrong idea here. This isn't what Jesus is about. They're annoyed because they beat them to it. And they, they would have been asking the same thing if they could. You see, it's funny that as soon as I'm given a little bit of power, as soon as I'm given a little bit of a position of influence, what's my natural inclination? It's to use that to serve me, to make my life that a little bit easier. I think I'm just like these guys. But I said Jesus asked this question twice. The other time is verse 51. And you, you can look at it there. And then this time he's asking this blind man, Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? 
And listen, Bartimaeus couldn't be further from, from James and John in, in so many ways. He's this total outsider. He's rejected and rebuked by everyone else. Jesus isn't going to be interested in you because nobody is interested in this worthless beggar sitting by the side of the road, blind and hopeless. But as Mark tells the story, we see that Jesus notices him. Jesus calls him. And Jesus looks him in the eye and he asks him that question, what do you want me to do for you? See, Bartimaeus, he has this whole different, totally different attitude to James and John. We read, Mark tells us, that he's been crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. You see, he knows who Jesus is. He calls him Son of David. It's another name for, for, for the Messiah, God's promised king. And we've seen, as we've been going through Mark, it took the disciples two and a half years to get that, of the intensive time of Jesus. And here is Bartimaeus. He's passing, Jesus passing through his town, and he calls it straight away. He knows who Jesus is, but he also knows who he is. He says, have mercy on me. I'm someone who is in need of mercy. I need you to treat me better than I deserve. I need mercy from you. Would you be kind to me? What can you do for me, Jesus? Master, I want to see. See, Bartimaeus, he's not seeking fame or glory or whatever else like the disciples. He's just humbly seeking restoration and wholeness. In faith, he's seeking healing from Jesus. And we've seen uh, consistently in the story of Mark, as we've kind of seen all of these people that Jesus has met and the people he's spoken to, time and time again, it's the humble, it's the poor, it's the outsider, it's the downcast, it's the broken, it's those who are rejected by everyone else. They're the ones who get Jesus. They've got simple, gutsy, bold faith. And they get Jesus. They get a whole load of blessing with that as well. You see, Bartimaeus is an example here. He comes to Jesus and we see in, in verse 52 that he is healed and his sight is restored. But there's this spiritual change that I think Mark has shown us that happens in Bartimaeus as well. You, you see, the word here that's used, that, that we read as healed in verse 52 when Mark wrote this, um, he, he used a word that he used a lot of other times in, in the same story. Actually, ten other times that he uses this in this story, it means delivered or saved. It's the word that we kind of understand for, say, salvation. And so we're seeing here that it's not only that Bartimaeus has his eyes open and he's healed physically, of course he is, but actually there's a sense in which his whole life is healed. Here he is saved. So this is an example of the outsider getting it and coming in and receiving new life from Jesus. And yet we've also seen the same thing, or the opposite side of the coin, kind of repeat itself through Mark. That the in crowd, those who seem closest, those who you would think would be most likely to get it, are those who are lost in their own ambition and self-interest. See, since we've, um, since Christmas in Mark, the last kind of month or so, we've been in this place, and we've talked about it a few times, um, where the disciples' spiritual eyesight is foggy. So spiritually, they kind of, they're not seeing clearly. They need their vision, their spiritual vision to be cleared up. Uh, it started, you can, if you want to flick over, you can see it. It started back in, in chapter 8, verse 22, a first, a few pages earlier. And there, Jesus healed another blind man. But that time, he healed this blind man in two stages. So he had a stage where his eyes were kind of, he kind of saw, but he didn't really see very clearly. 
That was just around the time when Peter called Jesus the Messiah. So there Jesus' friends see that he's the Messiah. They've got some spiritual sight to see and know who he is. And yet it's really clear that they're just confused about what that means and what that looks like. And so for the last few months, um, the story unfolds over a few months, and we've kind of taken about that time to go through it. There's been this toing and throwing. Jesus speaks over and over with great clarity about stuff like his death on the cross and his suffering and the fact that he's come to die for people. And what the, what the disciples doing at exactly the same time? They're basically arguing and fighting, trying to be the best, trying to be the greatest, jostling for prestige and power and, and this kind of stuff. And, and now we come at the end of this section to verse 52 of uh, Bartimaeus. Uh, and this blind man immediately and instantaneously receives sight. Physically, but we're also seeing spiritually he has insight. There's no delay, there's no stages or whatever. And we just see it's as if the fog spiritually is being lifted. Disciples are starting to see with the spiritual sight too. We're just one week out from Jesus dying on the cross. And finally, at this point, it's sinking in. Now where does this spiritual clarity come from? Well, look here at this key verse. This central verse. And it's not just key for this passage today, but listen, this verse is key for the whole of Mark's story. And it's, it's this, it's verse 45 in the middle of our passage here. It says this, for even, this is Jesus speaking, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's just read it again. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, if you like, this is Mark's summary of the whole of Jesus' life. He has come to serve. This is the Son of Man, the, the, the Messiah, the, the one of all glory, coming to be a servant of all. The lowest of servants for the sake of others. Listen, this has lost its shock factor for us. We're not kind of, we're not shocked and surprised by it. And that is because Jesus has had such an impact on Western culture that it doesn't shock us. Our idea of God is so framed by Him in our, in, in our culture more generally that we kind of expect Him to serve. And, and the reason you know that is because you think of a film like Bruce Almighty, uh, which came out a few years back. And, and this is how God is depicted in this film. Morgan Freeman plays God, who is this humble janitor there cleaning. And we kind of had this idea that God should come and serve. But listen, back then, that was not how people thought about God. Around the world today, that is not the way most cultures or religions talk about God. This is unique and this is shocking. I mean, it'd be shocking for us too. Imagine you were honoured to be invited to Buckingham Palace for tea with the Queen, okay? And, uh, and you, you go to Buckingham Palace, you're dressed up in your, your best outfit, uh, and you arrive, you're shown into this grand kind of boardroom, this amazing big pictures on the walls, beautiful decorations, gold everywhere, you know, everything's just perfect. Uh, and you're told, the Queen will be with you in a moment, you know, just, just wait, you're like, okay, I can wait for the Queen, it's okay. Uh, and, and a waitress comes and offers you a drink, and you, you say thank you very much, and you, you take the drink, and you turn to say thank you to the waitress. And there's the Queen, dressed like a maid, offering you a drink. You're like, whoa. 
Or, or, or even, even more, say after dinner, you've, you've enjoyed dinner with the Queen and you, you think that was the best dinner I've ever had. I want to go and say thank you to the chef. So you go into the kitchen at Buckingham Palace. You, you say, chef, I want to come and say thank you. That was an amazing meal. And you see in the corner of the kitchen, pots and pans piled high. And there's this person in their rubber gloves scrubbing away, kind of surrounded by pots and pans. And it's the Queen. There she is, clearing up after your dirty dinner. It's shocking, isn't it? And that's right, I googled Queen washing up to see if I get a picture. You can't. <laughs> you can't get it, you know? I mean, maybe she's washed up a pot one day, but I don't, I don't know. See, that doesn't even come close to how unbelievable this is. It's just like a trite little example. But that is shocking to us, isn't it? That is, it's unbelievable. This Son of Man, the son, son of God, has come to serve. Take the lowliest place as a servant. But also that verse says that he has come to be a ransom for many. Now listen, a ransom is a payment to set someone free. It's as if you or I are in, are in, in jail, in the lockup, because we've, because we've committed crime. And, and what happens is someone comes and they pay for us. They pay, pay to bail us out, out of their own pocket, and set us free. And that is what Jesus says. He says, don't worry, I've got this. I'm going to pay to set you free from my own pocket. And what does he have to pay? He has to give his life to pay the price, to set us free, to ransom us from Satan's sin and death. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It's such greatness and yet such humility. Actually, uh, back in the kind of story of Mark, we see that Jesus is, is backing this up with um, with the journey that he's on his with his disciples. So this is what happened in the first half of, of Mark's gospel. This is Israel um, back then. And Jesus was up in Galilee with his friends. Uh, this is where Jesus came from, up in Nazareth. Uh, and as we read the stories, they were going around this lake of Galilee. They crossed the lake many times. They went around, visited different places, kind of circling around, you know, zooming all around all over the place, that kind of thing. Jesus was going, healing people, teaching, doing miracles, visiting different places showing his disciples who he is and what he's like. But now what's happening is this. Jerusalem is down in the south there, and it's like Jesus is making a beeline straight down towards Jerusalem. No longer kind of circling around and doing routes. No, it's straight as a dart towards Jerusalem. And we read that in verse 32. We see that Jesus is leading on the way to Jerusalem, and it's repeated several times in this text and elsewhere in this section. And actually, he's heading to Jerusalem with the crowds. Lots of Israel are heading down towards the capital city on a pilgrimage to celebrate the Passover festival. So that's why we read that the crowds are going along with him. But listen, Jesus isn't going for some party in Jerusalem. He's quite clear here. He's going there to die. He's going there to be the Passover sacrifice. And that's why in, in verses 33 to 34, he explains with such detail and such clarity what he's going to do. He says, I'm going up to my death on the cross. The religious establishment, they're going to turn on me and they're going to condemn me to death. They're going to hand me over to the Gentiles. He's meaning the Romans there, the non-Jews. These Romans who are notorious for their torture, notorious for their prisons, notorious for their abuse. So Jesus explains to the disciples before it happens, they're going to mock me, they're going to spit on me, they're going to flog me, and eventually they will kill me. Before three days later, I'll rise from the dead. 
See, guys, this is what it took for Jesus to bail you out. It's what it took for him to bail me out, to pay the ransom. Do you see this clearly with spiritual eyes? That's what it took. See, we need to realize what we so desperately need before jumping to what we'd like Jesus to do for us, before giving him our wish list as if he's a genie. This is the third time here that Jesus has plainly told his disciples exactly what's going to happen, his death, his suffering, and his cross. And every single time, what they do in response is seek greatness. What they do in response is bring their wish list to Jesus. What they do in response is use their power for their own selfish benefit and gain. Just still not getting it. Although maybe now it's starting to sink in. You see, Jesus isn't just some genie. But Jesus is the son of man who gives his life as a ransom. Gives his life as a ransom for you. So what can you do for me, Jesus? Don't give me the world, but please, son of David, just have mercy on me, a sinner. Please heal me. Listen, the second question I think we need to ask is this. What are you willing to do for Jesus? What are you willing to do for Jesus? You see, this is important because if Jesus was just like a genie, then you kind of come with your wishes, you get what you want, and you go on your way, don't you? Life is all well and good. But Jesus isn't like that. He's one who serves us. He's one who gives himself as a ransom for us. And so therefore, he's one that calls us to new life with him. You see, Jesus is heading along this road to Jerusalem, what you could call the Calvary road of suffering and service to the point of giving up his life to death. And here's the mad thing. Verse 32, what does he do? He's leading his disciples along that road with him. He's taking them that place. He's taking them along the Calvary road of humility and suffering. This is why we've called this um, series Jesus and His Way. That's what we think the Gospel of Mark is doing. Because we've seen who Jesus is. We've seen how brilliant and amazing and awesome and out of this world Jesus is. So the first thing we see is Jesus. And we've seen what he does for people. And we see here that he gives his life as a ransom for us. And yet it's Jesus and his way, the way that he calls us on. We see that we're now called to follow along his way and in his path, and we're to be led by him along the path of discipleship and following him. You see, those who get Jesus will follow his way of humble service. I think it's to the extent that we get Jesus that we follow as humble servants. We see it with Bartimaeus here. What does he do as soon as he's healed in verse 52? He doesn't get up and... Cheers, Jesus. See you later. Going to go on and get on with my life. Happy Larry, you know, this is great. I can see. No, he goes from sitting on the side of the road and he gets up and he follows Jesus along the Calvary road. Mark's clear. He gets up and he follows him. This is what makes sense of this, um, this kind of strange conversation in the middle of the text, I think, where James and John come to Jesus with their request in 37 and 38. 
Uh, and they say, Jesus, can we have this great place in glory? And Jesus says to them, can you drink the cup I drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? You think, hold on, Jesus, they're asking about glory. Why, you know, cups and, and baptism, what's going on? Well, very briefly, he's picking up this Bible imagery of these images that we have in the Bible. The cup is this cup of drink that is filled with God's right and good anger at sin. And the idea of baptism is being plunged into the waters of death and being cut off from God. And so this picture of this cup and this talk of the baptism are really just pictures, again, talking about the suffering and the death on the cross that Jesus is going to. It's picture language for him saying, I'm going to go and give my life as a ransom. You see, the cup of God's wrath and God's anger at sin, Jesus alone drinks to its dregs. Jesus alone truly is drowned in the waves and the breakers of God's judgment and goes down into the depths of of hell and death. So when the disciples answer saying, yeah, we can do that, they're wrong, okay? They can't drink that cup and they can't receive that baptism. Jesus alone takes the punishment for sins to rescue others. It's his cup and it's his baptism. And yet, strangely, Jesus says there is a sense in which they will drink that cup. There is a sense in which they will receive that baptism. And the sense is this. They too will go through suffering and they too will go through hardship, even to the point of death for Jesus and his kingdom. Because they will follow his way. They will walk that road. It's reassuring, therefore, when Jesus says in verse 43 that this is the path to greatness, to true glory. Through service, through humbling ourselves, by being servants and making ourselves slaves of war through the suffering that is involved with that. You see, what happens, guys, when you become a Christian is by faith in Jesus, you enter into his death for you. You have to enter into his death for you. And yes, through that, to the new life as well. But you always go through to death in your faith. And if you think about it, that's symbolized, isn't it, in the imagery of what we do as we become a Christian. In our baptism, that is imagery of death. You're going down and being drowned. The old life is being killed in that imagery. It's a picture of exactly what happens for Christians. And the ongoing symbolism and imagery of the Lord's Supper is a meal of death. Do we not forget that we're drinking the blood of a dead man symbolically? We're, we're, we're eating the, the flesh symbolically of one who died for us. It's nothing less than the taste of death when we do that. Of our broken, the broken body and the given blood of our crucified Savior. See, this is what the Christian life is like. It's going through death into new life. And it's that pattern repeating itself over and over again so, so many t- times and in so many different ways. It's a path of discipleship, of suffering now and glory later. It's the way that Jesus calls us. It's the way that we come. Let me kind of try and land this uh, kind of in real life. You might say that sounds kind of interesting, but what does that actually mean in life here and now? Let me just try and and suggest some ways that that we can land this. And and these ideas are ways to encourage, actually, uh, many of you. 
So if you are on our hospitality team, the team that serves us by doing everything to do with the venue and, and stuff on a Sunday, and so you were out of bed early this morning, much earlier than you would like to have been, and you were here setting out chairs and brewing coffee and, uh, and greeting people with a smile on the door, and you're going to be clearing up our mess later and washing up our cups and, and other things like that. You're generally serving in unseen, unnoticed, unsexy kind of ways. Well, listen, be encouraged because you are on the path to greatness. You are on the path to greatness. What dignity here, what eternal value is given to the most lowly acts of service, the most seemingly meaningless and simplest things. They're the way to greatness. If you want to be great in this church, and you're not currently serving on a Sunday, come and speak to me or speak to John and Joe, and you can join our hospitality team. And you can become the greatest amongst us. That's what Jesus says here, eh? It's the way to be great. What about uh, you mothers or, or, or carers of young children? Maybe particularly if, if say, you're a single mum. How many nappies you have changed each day this week? How many changes of clothes you've been through with your child and yourself? How many times you've wiped sick or snot or endless hours of sleepless nights uh, just to feed and care for this little thankless baby or small child? Well, listen, it is your acts of service and your sacrifice that are great and are powerful. And they are deeply significant. Don't believe our culture when it says to you in a million different ways, it's not worth it, it's invaluable, it shouldn't be honoured, it's a waste of your life. Because serving is greatness to Jesus, and it is greatness in his kingdom. So that is great. Listen, all of us, I guess, in in some ways will seek to serve and and may indeed be serving in in various ways. And with me, I'm sure you will know it can be tiring and it can wear you out. And sometimes you can just think, I just want to give up. Nobody's noticed. Nobody's said thanks. Why is it me again? Why why, Why isn't it someone else? I'm not sure I can carry on. Do you think like that sometimes? Listen, I want you to see these two Vital words. I don't know if I've got that. I've got it back here. Yeah. Two vital words in verse 45. I think maybe the two most important words in, 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 this, uh, in this sentence that Jesus says. And they might be hard to spot because you think they won't matter. It's the first two words, for even. For even. You see, Jesus saying the reason that greatness is found in serving, the reason that you can make yourself a slave of all, is because he, the glorious Son of Man, has come to serve, suffer, and die as a ransom. He's saying greatness is found in serving, for even the Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom. So because he has done that, we can find greatness. We can find the ability to serve, to make ourselves a slave, to take the lowest position. This is his upside-down kingdom where serving is the route to greatness. That's because our king is the foremost servant. So you want to become the greatest and take the lowest, take the most menial position you can in any situation. The lie that we believe, the lie that our culture tells us is that we find our greatness 
in being great, in being in authority and power and positions of influence and rich and, and wealth or whatever else. But listen, Jesus is the greatest of all. There is none greater than him, and yet he is the foremost servant. See, guys, it's not that you have to serve. I'm not trying to kind of apply some emotional manipulation and pressure so you're guilted into it. If you're guilted into joining the hospitality team, then maybe better you don't. Don't serve reluctantly and with bitterness and anger and kind of, I don't know, whatever else that we can get into. No, it's this. It's that because of a real living experience of Jesus serving you to the point of dying for you, you can now serve. You are free to serve. It enables you to actually serve. So as you experience his love and experience his kindness and his mercy and receive his grace and his ransom, his death as a ransom for you, and you kind of experience that afresh over and over, each day you live off that reality and it changes your heart and your life, then you become transformed to be one who has a servant-hearted mindset and posture. You become transformed that you humbly give yourself for and to others. Because as you receive from him, it so changes you that that just overflows. And so you do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility you value others above yourself. You don't look to your own interests, but you look to the interests of others. And so you become like Jesus, the servant. So this is the question, what are you willing to do for Jesus? What are you willing to do in service of him? Because I think your answer to that kind of shows how much you get hold of what he has done for you. That's how these questions are connected. How you answer that in your life kind of shows how much you've got of what he's done for you. As I close, here's a couple of, uh, I think, beautiful but challenging truths that, that, that we, we do well to reflect on. The first one is this, that nobody is too great to serve. Nobody is so great that they're above it. So listen, if you're someone who does have a position of influence, you have a position of power or authority, then why don't you use that, not for your own ends, but to humbly serve others? Some people here are, um, are in management positions in the workplace. And so we have people who, who we're in authority over and in a position of influence of. Well, listen, if that's you, why don't you surprise your team this week by doing this, doing the worst job that nobody wants to do, that everyone avoids. <clears throat> every organization, every culture has them, right? I mean, you know what it is. Why don't you surprise them by doing that this week? The thing that really you're above and you don't need to do and someone else should do, why don't you do it? And do it quietly and unseen. Don't drop into the conversation how you've done it or, you know, kind of leave little hints and signals that you're such a humble and servant-hearted leader. No, just do it for the sake of using your power to serve because of how Jesus served you. Maybe it'll win an opening for the gospel to be shared. Who knows? So nobody is too great to serve. But here's the other side of the coin. Nobody is too insignificant or too small to serve. Nobody's too low to serve either. I think Martin Luther King Jr. puts it excellently in um, this quote here. 
You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You don't have to know Plato and Aristotle. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics in physics. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. All you need to serve is to be transformed by an experience of what Jesus has done for you. Nobody is too low to serve. And so everyone can be great. Because everyone can serve. It's a pathway that's open to us all. We all have something to contribute. Maybe we need some help or we need to think more carefully about what it looks like for us to serve in life, in church, or whatever else. But we can all do it and we're all called to do it. We're going to share uh, the Lord's Supper together in a moment. I think kind of it's totally appropriate, isn't it, in light of these things to do that together. And the Lord's Supper is this. It is the meal of, of the ransomed, those who have been paid, uh, uh, bought back. The payment has been made to, to have us. Those who have been set free by Jesus to love and serve him and others. And those ransomed people are marked out by their baptism into his death. And so therefore this Lord's Supper is for those who have been baptised in this or another gospel church. Or, or, or maybe those who are preparing for baptism now. Because they are those who have been baptised into his death and into new life. So if that's you, we want you to join with us in sharing this meal. And if that isn't yet you, then just ask you as we, we do this to stay seated. And why not consider what you think of Jesus? And what you would say to that question, what do you want me to do for you? You see, this meal... This Lord's Supper, it tastes of death. As I said earlier, it's his body broken, it's his blood poured out. But you know what the aftertaste is? It's life. It's the fullness of life. It's forgiveness of sins, it's eternal hope, it's joy. And so it's a freedom meal, it's a meal to be received with joy and with faith and with hope. Because yes, it's a meal of death, but also it's a meal that promises life. Lord Jesus, you are the glorious Son of Man. You are the Son of God. You are in the highest place of glory and honour. You're supreme over all things. And yet, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We thank you. We praise you that you came to serve us, to pay the ransom to set us free, to free us from having to aspire to and seek to be great by our own power and influence and authority and whatever else. You freed us to follow you and to serve, to serve one another, to serve those around us and to know greatness and life in that. We thank you. By faith we receive and enjoy again in the bread and the wine your death for us and all that it signifies and means. And by faith, we drink and eat, looking forward to you coming back when the fullness of your life will be known and experienced as well. Thank you that life is the lasting aftertaste that we have in knowing you. Amen.